Well, this morning we're continuing a series on the first couple chapters of Acts. A couple weeks ago I started on the Pentecost story when the Holy Spirit came down and filled the disciples and the disciples started speaking in tongues, a crowd gathered, and Peter stood up to preach. And then last week, Sunday evening, I looked at Peter's sermon, and Peter says that all the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus, and Jesus is the new forever king in the line of David, come to be our Lord and our Savior. And today we come to the verses after Peter's sermon where we see how the crowd reacts. I'm going to start reading with verse 36, which is actually the conclusion of Peter's sermon, and then I'll read through verse 41 this morning. This is God's word for us today. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. One time when I was over at an uncle and aunt's house, a bunch of neighborhood kids about my age were going for a bike ride, and I got invited along. So I borrowed a bike, and off we went. But as it turned out, what kids in that neighborhood meant by a little bike ride was going around to a place where there were some dunes and some nice piles of dirt and a few jumps. And so these kids would bike ride by biking down one slope, pedaling up the next, getting a good jump off the top, and coming back around for another go at it. And that was pretty fun to watch. But after I'd watched for a little while, they were like, hey, man, it's your turn. And I was like, yeah, I I don't know. Let me watch a couple more times to see how it's done. But a little later, they were like, man, you just got to try it. Just do it. Get some good speed going downhill. Whatever you do, don't slow down until you're up the next slope, up in the air, and it'll be great. Well, I was a little skeptical, but there were a lot of guys there, and peer pressure kind of kicked in, so I went for it. Don't bow to peer pressure, kids. It doesn't end well. At this point, it may be relevant to mention that these other kids were driving like nice BMX bikes or mountain bikes, good solid bikes, and I was borrowing my cousin's old bike. And this was an old road bike with worn out tiny little tires that couldn't take a bump. And also my cousin was a girl and the bike was pink. (laughs) Now all of that was a little humiliating, but still it was all right. For the sake of adventure, I was willing to borrow a non-ideal ride. But as I was riding down that slope, I decided I wasn't really ready for this and I wanted to get off. But I found out that along with all of its other non-ideal characteristic, that bike's brakes didn't work very well at all, at all. So now I'm biking down this slope, headed for an uphill slope and a jump, and I'm surrounded by hard ground and pokey weeds. And the only advice that anybody had given me was to go as fast as possible. And all the guys on top of the slope are still yelling at me, go faster, go faster. So what was I supposed to do? I went faster, right until I wiped out. And the bike went one way, and I went the other way, 
And while I was sitting on the ground trying to clear my head and think of a, think of a subtle way to sneak away and go home, one of the other kids was like, dude, that did not go right. You should try something different next time. You think? I decided I didn't really need to do that again, so I just walked that bike home, put it in the garage, and found some Tylenol and Band-Aids and watched a movie that afternoon. One out-of-control ride on a bad bike was enough for that day. Now, back in Acts 2, as Peter preached on through his sermon, the people had that sense that they were out of control and headed downhill toward a nasty crash. Peter started out by hinting to the crowd that the last days had come when God would come and rescue his people, the Israelites, and the crowd would have been jumping for joy at that news. But then Peter turns a corner on them and tells them that Jesus of Nazareth was God's promised holy one, and suddenly the people are looking destruction right in the face. Peter tells them that Jesus was sent by God. Peter tells them that Jesus has ascended to heaven and is reigning at God's right hand. God has made this Jesus, whom they crucified, both Lord and Christ. God's promised messenger has come, and the people have rejected him. They have crucified the Lord and Savior that God had sent them. And once you've done that to the king of the universe, what hope can you possibly have left? As the crowd listened to Peter that morning, they realized they were speeding down the slope to sure destruction. And so Acts 2.37 tells us that the people were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We know we're in trouble. We can see the writing on the wall. We're picking up speed, and we're headed toward a cliff. What shall we do? And of course, the people there in front of Peter on that day weren't alone in that predicament. The Bible tells us that everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody is perfect, and in fact, all of us are so imperfect that a holy God can't live with us. Everybody is speeding out of control and headed for the ultimate crash. So what shall we do about it? Now, I would guess that most of us here this morning already know the answer to the question. If nothing else, we read it when we read Acts 2 just a little bit earlier today. But for most of us, even if we've known the good news for years or decades or for our whole life, it's still good for us to hear texts like this and to be reminded what all of this means. So Peter gives the crowd three things to do. First, he tells the crowd to repent. And basically, repent means turn around, change, do something different. But while the basic idea is pretty simple, turn around, Repentance has to work on a number of levels. These people can't just say they feel bad, they're sorry, and then move on. Repentance can't be just internal. It can't be just about our feelings. But at the same time, repentance can't just be external. The crowd can't just do a few rituals, follow a few rules, toe the religious line, and have things work out okay. When Peter tells the crowd to start by repenting, he's telling them they need to make a total change in their lives. They need to turn everything around, and they need to be headed on a different road in a different direction. The best thing that you can do if you're headed down the wrong road is to turn around and get back on the right road. 
Whether you drive on that wrong road safely or recklessly, whether you go faster or slower, whatever you do, it doesn't matter. You are still on the wrong road. When people are headed away from God, what they need to do is get turned around, not do what they're doing better. But honestly, no matter how hard we try, no matter how convinced we are that we need to change, no matter how much we want to change, we can't make it happen. The Bible tells us that we are all dead in our sin, and dead bodies can't do anything to improve their condition. We are all hopelessly caught in a downhill slide. Our speed is too great, the slope is too steep, and we are too far gone to do anything on our own. When I was on that bike headed down the slope, I could not turn around and get on a different path. That was not a live option. Now, another time, I was biking in the Colorado mountains with some cousins of mine, and I don't know what it is with my family and biking, but we always get these great stories. But anyway, we were biking down this mountain trail, and we came to this part where the trail sort of curved up and down and around, cut through a bunch of trees, and sort of ran along the edge of a fairly steep, long slope. We kind of knew this spot was coming, so most of us did okay, but one of my cousins missed the cue to slow down, and so he hit the first turn way too fast. He slid around that corner, he was wobbling down the trail, just about hit a couple trees, and he felt like he was going to go off the trail and down the slope, or as he told the story later, off this huge cliff. But then as he kept kind of sliding and fishtailing down the trail, he got a little bit of control, he got his brakes working for him, and he had an inspiration. If you're on a trail in the mountains and you're dodging between trees and you feel like you're about to go down the slope, what's a surefire way to get your bike to stop? You run into a tree. So he ran his bike into one of the trees by the side of the path. Now, don't try that at home. In general, running into stationary objects isn't safe, it's not recommended biking behavior, and it's not cool. I actually ran into a parked car about 20 years ago and I still haven't lived that one down. But sometimes, sometimes inviting a collision is the best choice on the table. If you're about to go off a cliff and you see something that could catch you, all you can do is aim for this thing that's going to rescue you and prepare for the shock of the collision as best you can. Better to have that shock of a sudden stop than to go over the cliff. Repentance is a sudden stop sometimes. It's tough it requires making huge internal and external changes in our lives. And it's not something any of us can do on our own. We need to be rescued. We need to have someone stop our slide downhill. We need to be brought back from death to life. And that's where Peter goes next. After he tells the people in front of him that they need to repent, he says they need to repent and then to be baptized, every one of them, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of their sins. Now this morning we can't possibly unpack all of the meanings of baptism, but one part of the meaning and the reality and the symbolism behind baptism is that in Jesus' death and resurrection, all of us have died to sin and been brought back to new life in Christ. When we were dead in our sins, Jesus brought us back to life. When we were speeding hopelessly down the slope to destruction, Jesus stepped in and he caught us. Now this can be a huge shock to our systems. It's bad news that we need to be saved. 
It can be really bad, hard news to hear that parts of ourselves need to die in order for us to really have eternal life. For some of us, we need to experience the shocking realization that no matter what we do, no matter how good we are, and we might think we're pretty good, no matter how good we are, nothing we can do can save us. And we need to lay down our self-righteousness and let ourselves be clothed in Jesus' righteousness. For others, the challenge comes in realizing that our lifestyles just don't and never will match up to God's will. So when Jesus saves us from destruction, he pulls us away from some of the things that we just love in this life. Speeding downhill can be a lot of fun, but of course the crash at the end isn't pretty, and we need Jesus to be our rescuer. We can't get turned around. We can't really repent on our own. But in baptism, we have a sign and a seal of God's promise to forgive our sins because of the work of Jesus and to get us going in the right direction. This can be a shock. But at the end, those who believe in Jesus will find that their lives have been given back to them and that they're better than they ever could have been speeding down that slope. And at the end of verse 38, Peter also tells the crowd that they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If being baptized in Jesus is like being born again, then receiving the Holy Spirit is like living in that new life. Now, the gift of the Holy Spirit here in Acts 2.38 isn't like the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we read about in other places. This isn't about administration or giving or preaching or speaking in tongues or any of that. The gift of the Holy Spirit in this passage is just the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God's presence in our lives is the greatest gift he gives. After God brings us from death to life, after he turns us around, after he's rescued us, he lives with us and he leads us on the right way. When we repent and we're baptized and we have our sins forgiven, we start a new kind of life. God saves us from destruction, and he gives us a new, improved version of what our living can be like. What shall we do? Asked the crowd in verse 37. And Peter tells them to repent, to be baptized, and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And obviously, in some sense, all of those things are actions that those people can do. But it's dangerous to read this passage and think that it's really all about what people can do. Peter isn't really focused on that. What he's focused on is the work that God has already done and will do for the people that he's preaching to. This can be a hard lesson for us to really absorb, but the gospel message is not about what we do. It's about trusting what God has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. There's this old joke about a guy who somehow fell off a cliff and just a little way down, he grabbed onto a small tree growing out the edge of the cliff and he, well, he didn't stand there, but he hung there and he clung for dear life and he screamed and screamed for help. And after a few minutes, he heard a voice say from up on the cliff, yeah, I'm here, what do you need? And it's a voice that has some deep, deep resonance to it. So the guy says, who are you? I'm God, the voice replies. And the man says, oh, thank you, thank you. Please save me. You want me to save you, God asks. Yes, shouts the man, quickly. Okay, says God, let go of the tree and I'll catch you. 
The man pauses for a second. He looks up the cliff. He looks at the tree. He looks down the cliff. And then he yells, is anybody else up there? Now, there's a few theological issues with that joke. But it gets the point across that we are far too slow to depend only and always on God to save us and to trust that he really will save us. We keep wanting to save ourselves, to find some action or method or person or work or something that will save us, something besides undeserved, unearned, unmerited grace. Tim Keller, who's a Presbyterian pastor in New York, has a nice way of putting this. Often, he says, religious people like to live according to the saying, I live a good life, therefore, Jesus accepts me. In other words, we often act like Jesus accepts us because of what we do for him. Even if we know that it's all about grace, we often live like it's all up to us. Like we need to repent hard enough, we need to live righteously enough, we need to do what we're told well enough in order to be saved. That idea really resonates with something inside us somehow, but it really just leads us back down the slippery slope to destruction in the end. If we live according to the principle that Jesus loves us because of what we do, we end up going one of two terrible directions. If we live pretty good lives, or we convince ourselves anyway that we live pretty good lives, we end up, as Keller puts it, as smugly self-satisfied people. And we don't realize that we need to be rescued from anything. On the other hand, if if our lives are messed up, if we can't measure up to what we know to be good and right, then believing that Jesus loves us because of what we do always leaves us anxious insecure and displeased with ourselves and mad at God because we know that we can't and we don't measure up to God's standards. But the truth of the matter that we need to hear again and again and that we need to keep coming back to is that Jesus accepts us before we do anything for him. When we were dead in our sins, when we were hopelessly out of control, Jesus stepped in and rescued us. The truth is that as Christians, we try to do good works because Jesus has already accepted us. Jesus accepts me. Jesus accepts you. And therefore, we try to live good lives in gratitude for what God has already done for us. God always takes the first step in walking and working with us. We always follow God's lead. And God is always faithful to what he has promised. In verse 39, Peter tells the crowd and us that the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. When we were lost and wandering, God called us to himself. When we were headed for for destruction, Jesus saved us. Now, verse 40 in the NIV tells us that Peter warned and pleaded with the crowd to save themselves from this corrupt generation. But a better translation of that might actually be to say that Peter warned and pleaded with the crowd to let themselves be saved from this corrupt generation. Now, either way you translate it, Peter's focus is on Jesus, the Lord and Savior, On Jesus, the one who is standing there to catch people as they slide down the cliff. 
This is not about people somehow magically saving themselves. This is about people throwing themselves on the grace of God. Throwing themselves on Jesus as their rescuer. Jesus who died to save even the people in that crowd on that Pentecost day who had been part of getting Jesus crucified. Jesus took on the punishment that all people, even the people in that crowd that day, even us, that all of us deserved. There is no sin that Jesus' death can't pay for and no sinner who he can't get turned around and started in a new life, even us. Let me close with three quick points. First, if you've never really, truly accepted this Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let yourself be saved today. If you've been just going through the motions of the faith or you've been depending on your own goodness to save you, turn around today and let Jesus save you. Repent, accept God's forgiveness for your sins in Jesus' name, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to new life. And second, if you have accepted Jesus, be assured that you are saved. This promise is for you. If you have repented and you believe in Jesus, you are born again and you have new eternal life in the Holy Spirit. God will not save you because of what you can do for him. God has already saved you through what he has done for us. And finally, even if you're a mature believer, even if you feel assured of your salvation, even if you get everything that I've said this morning and you've got it right, don't just sit back and marinate in the fact that God has saved you. Continue to fight sin in your life. Continue to grow in knowledge and love of God and continue to share that love with others. And wherever you find yourself this morning, may you grow in the love of the Father, in the grace of Jesus, His Son, and in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.